we began to discuss uh, what was developed in the 17th and 18th and 19th and continues to this day to be developed and amended, a, uh, what began to be a non-Jewish theory. Interestingly, it was promulgated by Jew haters, which is important to note. The very first of the Bible critics were rabid anti-Semites. Uh, when they essentially said that the Torah, which was till then, or up till then, was traditionally accepted as being the uh, word of God, as per the dictation of God to Moses, and uh, a new theory is developed and honed, wherein it's not uh, the word of God, certainly it's not the word of even one human author. In fact, there's multiple human authors who are writing down uh, the legends and the folklore and the tales and the fairy tales uh, that have been existed uh, or been existing in their in their cultures for a long time, and then over a couple hundred years, just comes along one guy and puts it all together uh, and creates the final book, which he then passes off. He or she then or they pass off as being uh, the word of God, and the Jews accept it. That's the rough uh, the rough uh, of this um, of this theory. Now. What I want to do, I want to, like we said last week, we're, we're, you know, the questions are good questions. It's just that the conclusions are a little bit disingenuous. And I'll explain what I mean here. I want to introduce a concept which I like to call the two-door tests. Uh, if you're faced with a binary equation, right, if you're faced with only two options, there's only two options that could possibly exist, uh, and you have to choose which one's the best option, I think that there's a logical uh, game we could play wherein we say, okay, there's door A, and what does it mean to go into door A all the way? Conversely, there's door B, and what does it mean to go into that all the way? Uh, And the reason why it's a good game is because we're not used to thinking like that. We're used to saying, okay, door A has a problem. It must be that door B is correct answer. Uh, And the reason why we don't do that is because let's say, okay, well, what about door B? We have to investigate, does does going through door B have the same problems? Uh, I'll give you an example of, of where this statement can be played out. Very frequently you hear people saying, Rabbi, I don't like organized religion. You know why? Because religion causes war, and war has bloodshed, and war is evil, and war is terrible. Thus, right, it, we must ergo s, religion is bad. That's what people say. Is that a good question? Yeah, religion causes war. Organized religion causes war. So is it a good argument to say, well, maybe there's a problem with religion if, if war is you know, objectively bad, so maybe religion is a bit at fault for war? That's not a bad argument, and that's a good question on, the, on, the, on that door. But once we're saying that argument, you have to say it all the way. And you know what is the number one reason why people go to war? It's not religion, it's territory. So if we're, making, we're following this model of things that cause war and the ensuing accompanying bloodshed are necessarily evil and bad and wrong, does that mean we shouldn't have territory? We shouldn't have countries? We shouldn't have land? We shouldn't have borders? We shouldn't own land? We should float in the air? I, I don't know. I'm saying if the only argument is X, we have to be, we cannot be disingenuous with our argument. We have to be intellectually honest and say, okay, if there's a problem, let's examine it, and let's also examine if the alternative has a problem as well. I'll give you guys another example. Some people like to question the existence of God. And this, of course, 
gains an uptick. When you talk about bad things happening to, to good people or bad things happening in general, and there's an assumption, well, if God is around or if God exists, if that's true, then bad things shouldn't happen because God is necessarily good and bad things are necessarily bad. And if God has the ability to stop it, why would he not? That's the basic argument a lot of people make. Okay, well, that door is closed, right? Okay, but what's the other option? We have to say, okay, if you want to reject God, and by the way, God explains the world that we live in. With all its complexities, with all its uh, vicissitudes, God explains that, right? And, 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 And you know, especially if you have the Jewish perspective on the matters, you'll say, well, okay, we see meaning, behind suffering, we see meaning behind life, there's purpose, there's goals, there's a universal vision for everything. Like, we, we really, you know, yes, you go through the door, there's problems, and the problems you have to really grapple with, but really everything makes sense, and we understand how we even got here. But I pose the question, if you want to reject the existence of God, well, then the only other option is that God doesn't exist. Well, okay, if God doesn't exist, take that door all the way you have to explain me an alternative explanation for how we all got here. And that's going to be problematic. And that's much more, it's much easier to say, oh, religion causes war. I'm not religious, right? I don't believe in God, right? I'm an atheist. That's very easy, but that's not honest intellectually. Intellectually, to say, okay, I don't believe X because of Y, but I do believe Z, or whatever alternative is, and I have a way to explain that. And that doesn't have the same questions that the option that I rejected has. Let's play a game. You know, we would call the game. The game is called Let Us Make Men. And start off with a Big Bang that's 14 billion years ago, and start off with an Earth that's 3.5 to 4.6 billion years ago. And tell me how, first of all, tell me how you're getting matter, how you're getting atoms, right? How you're getting the exact number of uh, protons and, and electrons in the world. Tell me where you get uh, hydrogen and carbon and, and oxygen and nitrogen and, and phosphorus and all the sugars. Start from there. Build me some amino acids. Give me strings of amino acids and give me nucleic acids. and get, Make that all. Tell me how that all happens if there's no God. Just work me through it. And you're creating cells and, oh, you hit one cell, mazel tov, which, by the way, I don't know how you would even hit one cell. But let's say you got the single-celled organism. You got it, right? How does that work? How do you make an amino acid? How do you make a protein? How do you make a single cell that's self-replicating, that has all the technology? With a single human cell has three billion pairs of, uh, of, of DNA part, of, of DNA bases. Where does that come from, if not for God? Take the door. Tell me, explain to me. How do you get one cell? Much less one cell to multiple more complex cells to animals that have functions and they, you know, and, and, and that work and reproduce and everything is so super balanced. And now we have a trillion different species in this planet we found out recently. A trillion. How are you getting a trillion species out of nothing without God? Just walk me through that door. Evolution, by the way, starts from an amoeba which is like ah, a single-celled organism. A single-celled organism is the most complicated technology that we could ever fathom to create. Right? Nothing that we all have collected human ingenuity has not created something that replicates a single-celled organism. But we say, well, compared to more complex 
organisms. Uh, you know, it's not so complex. Evolution starts with that. Everything else is beyond the scope of science. Well, maybe religion causing war is beyond the scope of religion, right? Why are we giving this, this freedom, this, uh, this uh, immunity from criticism to an alternative to God and not giving the same immunity to a much more minor criticism to the other option? Five billion years get me from nothing I'll give you matter. I don't even know how they got matter. Because you can't make any matter. That's a rule of physics. Right? You have matter. Take me from there without God. Remember, no intervention. How are you creating the very basic building blocks of life out of inanimate matter? And once you're doing that, just work me through how you get to, to a trillion different species over 3.5 billion years. Just tell me how, how that works. And you know what? You can't. You can't. And, by the way, this doesn't question evolution. Evolution is a process. We talk about God as a source, as an overseer, as a creator, bore olam, creator of the world. The methods that God used to create the world, that's a mystery to us. Because we have a couple of verses in Genesis and that's all we have. We have absolutely no idea how God created the world. Is it possible that God created the world with an evolutionary process? Certainly. And in fact, it even seems that if you look at the progression of the development of the species in the, se- in the seven days of Genesis, it does go from more simple to more complex. We start with the grasses and the trees and the plants and the vegetation and the animals and, the, and then eventually to the human, right? To the more sophisticated animals, to the human. So is it so outrageous to say God created the world using evolution? By the way, just on side point, just to add it to your equation, let, let us make man, right? You also, you also have to account for the 99% of species that are extinct, Right? According to science, 99% of species that have ever existed are already extinct. You've got to add that much many species to your plan of getting from nothing to all there, right? to a world where there's a trillion species and there's who knows how many trillions of extinct species. I, I have no idea how you're doing that. Um, and you know what? No one really has an idea. Uh, but, but people are willing to question one side of the argument uh, without ever levying any form of strict, rigid analysis on the other side of the argument is a bit disingenuous. And what we will find today is that the bar for promulgating, for presenting, for for positing arguments against the traditional view is much lower than trying to defend and support the Torah and the existence of God. But either way, I want to also say, by the way, that uh, we've had in history... A, uh, a leader of a country who's very famous, whose name we all know, uh, who was the biggest proponent of evolution, more than anyone that you guys know. And that, of course, is Hitler. Hitler was obsessed with this idea of, uh, of survival of the fittest, of the fact that it's morally proper for the more developed, the more sophisticated, to consume and destroy the less sophisticated. And in an evolutionary sense, he's right, which is weird. But I'm saying, we kind of, we tend to say, yeah, we like evolution as long as it rejects the idea of God. But to take it to the logical conclusion, that we won't do. You know, that's, that's evil, that's wrong. And of course it's evil, and of course it's wrong. But, but, but it's also a little bit dishonest to say, we like the idea, uh, you know, so long as it conforms with what we think is 
socially acceptable or morally acceptable or what we feel comfortable with. But if it goes beyond that, well, then it's not true. Well, if it is true, it's true. And once again, my point is not to try to uh, uh, lambast evolutionists. Evolution could be very much true within a certain context of God overseeing it. But the idea of evolution being an engine on its own, thus uh, nature, so to speak, is uh, evolution is propelling us on its own with its own engine. The idea of evolution being a good thing. Hitler believed that very strongly, and that dominated uh, his Weltanschauung, which, by the way, was one of his favorite words, uh, his world outlook. And there's a, a book recently came out called Black Earth, which this is his theme. His theme is that Hitler was obsessed with the idea of racial purity and the idea of kind of categories of humans and really taking the idea of, of evolution and injecting it into, into, into real life situations. It's crazy, you know? But, but you have to explain, if you believe in evolution as the alternative for God, tell me he's wrong and tell me why. And it's, it's very hard to do. But if you actually take that door, right, that's where, that, that's where you may end up. But that's a, a pretty scary thought. Okay, well, what about our, our discussion at hand? We're talking about um, the authorship of the Torah. And the authorship of the Torah is also a binary equation. There's really only two options. Either God wrote it, or a human wrote it. Or, and if it's a human, it could be Moshe, it could be Ezra, it could be... Uh, a compilation of people, right? Or it could be someone, who, the point is someone who's not uh, God or certainly not a prophet, right? That's really the only two options. Uh, and if so, we have to say, okay, if we find a problem or a perceived problem with one of the doors or one of the options, we ha- and, we, and, and as a result of, by dint of that problem, we opt for the other option, we have to understand that that other option has to also make sense. If I say, oh, there's a problem with this option, so let's choose that option. But that option has many, 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 many more problems and makes it even that much less likely to, have been, to, have, to, to, to be true, well, then it's still preferable to go with the other option. Uh, and about that being said, I'm not trying to concede that a, a, that a Torah of divine authorship has problems. I don't believe it does. But I'm saying even perceived problems of the Torah, even if we're starting from the ground line here, we're really trying to take a, an empty canvas and really examine it from the ground up. Even if there are perceived problems that we have with Torah as being a divine document, let's initially examine the other side. Let's assume it's a human document, and let's see what kind of questions that, that, that raises. For example... Uh, we mentioned this last week, and I want to kind of talk about it a little longer. Uh, the argument of the Bible creators is a little bit self-contradictory. Uh, on one hand, we're dealing with a skilled redactor who's able to seamlessly weave multiple documents into one. He takes multiple documents, the J, the P, the right, all that, and he's able to decide what goes where and everything, put it all perfectly in place to make it one coherent, cogent document. On one hand... On the other hand, when the Bible critics look at the Torah, to them it's so clear the demarcations of the various texts. To them it's obvious that this was a product of multiple authors. So did he do a good job or not? Right? Was this some sort of stylistic genius who was masterfully 
mask the various different documents that were the original documents. Yet, the creation story on chapter 1 of Genesis, the very first chapter of the Torah, is repeated in chapter 2. And this is one of the big questions of the Bible queries. Why would Genesis be repeated twice? When truth is it's not repeated twice. Certain elements are repeated twice, but even, even that, they're not really repeated. There's, it's different themes, right? It's just not reading it critically. But my point is, let's try to think as a Bible critic thinks, okay? We find chapter 1, chapter 2 of Genesis, and they have overlaps. Or what we think to be are, are redundancies, repetitions. Okay, obviously they're two different documents, right? That's what the Bible critic would say. Obviously they're two different documents. Wait a minute. Was this guy so sloppy in his editing process that he couldn't even figure out on the very first and second chapter not to repeat himself? It seems contradictory. Which one is it? You have to choose a side. We, we cannot have some very creative, very talented genius of literary capability to weave it all together, yet they got mixed up with the names, couldn't figure out the name of God, yet it's so sloppy that things are repeated right even from, from the very beginning. The, the, the logical leap of saying that something is repeated and thus it's for sure never, for sure it must be two different accounts is crazy, right? Uh, especially when it's not repeated the same thing. There's different content. So maybe we're being told multiple things. Like the, the, the argument itself is, the, the, the framework for the argument is based upon two contradictory premises. Number one, that the redactor is so talented and able to weave them all together. But number two, he did an absolutely terrible job. Number one. Um, number two, I think everyone would agree Certainly the Bible critics believe it. Certainly the uninitiated believe it. That the author or authors of the Torah, of the Bible, are histories, perhaps histories, arguably histories, most talented legal systematizers. They were able to organize law in, in, in cla- clearly and in, in, in exhaustively and talk about everything and really give an exhaustive detail of law and morality and how society should look. They did a fantastic job, on one hand. No one's going to deny that. On the other hand, clearly the author, right? We're, we're starting from the bottom. We, we know nothing. But the author clearly is one of the great legal systematizers out there. Like this, you know, it's, 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 it's a legal system, by the way, that is still predominantly used today. Like the themes that we have today, English common, common law, are based a, a lot on Torah law. So a lot of the law we have in America, and really in the whole world, is based on Torah law. Other religions modified and copied it. Other religions believe it to be... Like, it's a fantastic document on one hand. On the other hand, we also know that the Torah makes it abundantly clear that observance of, this, of these rules are mandatory. Clearly, right? It talks about punishments if you don't observe it. and All of Deuteronomy is full of these... you got to observe, you got to observe... Yet, in many parts of the law, it withholds from giving us clear directives on how to fulfill many mitzvahs. I'll give you an example. A mitzvah that's repeated many, many times in the Torah, the mitzvah of Shabbos, observing the Shabbos. Don't do malach on Shabbos. Don't do work on Shabbos. Rest on Shabbos. Whoever does work on Shabbos, mechalel ma'as you have to observe Shabbos. How do you observe Shabbos? Don't you think that it should have broken it down 
to a more granular level, right? And told us, well, the, these are the principles, and these are the sub-principles, these are the categories, right? Shouldn't that be broken down? Yeah. If that's the only document that we have? And not only that, the doc- I mean, think about it. If a human author wrote that document, right, clearly with a, c- a c- capability and a, and, and, and a scale to really encompass all of law that we can imagine, they did a terrible job because you really cannot use a document to fulfill law. We're not told what tote to looks like, for example. Uh, we're not told how to do things like, uh, um, any, really, almost any mitzvah we're not, we're not, we're not told. Uh, lastly, no, not lastly, but uh, additionally, the document refers itself, the, document, the written document itself refers to other instructions that are not found anywhere else in the, in the document. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 21, it says that if you want to eat meat, you have to slaughter it. As I instructed. If you look from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy, there's no instruction on how to slaughter. By the way, the laws of slaughtering an animal, kosher, shechting an animal, are voluminous. There's lots of detail. And we're not told anywhere, yet in the book itself it says we're told. So just tell me, how, how does that work? Assuming you have human authorship, let's take that door. Let's take the door. Why would they write it? It got lost? I'm saying, so the editor should have taken it out, right? Well, along with the other things that didn't make sense, uh, right, ostensibly. What are these instructions that he's referring to? And why would it not be all written down? And if it wasn't, there were no other methods of instructions, right, why would it be included in the text? Because it doesn't make any sense. There's problems that really are fundamental problems uh, uh, to the theory that it's a human, uh, of human authorship and the oral Torah is not real. It's not part of it. It's not part of the collective corpus. It must be the document, or at least the authors of the document, knew of a accompanying text or accompanying ins- instructions. Where is it? And what are the implications of that other text in explaining said, uh, you know, our text a- at hand? Additionally, I want to ask another question here. And we're going to go further into all of these things a little bit, a little bit later. Who, who, who are these people that wrote this? Who, who, who are these people? Are they, are they Jews? Are they non-Jews? Are they anti-Semites? Well, you would say probably they're Jews, right? Well, I'm saying if this was written by humans, my point is if, this was, if we're going with that door, door number B, it's written by humans, who are these people? Are they Jews? Probably, right? Well, don't you think they should write something nice about the Jews? Wouldn't that be nice that Abraham is not castigated and Isaac is not spoken negatively of and Jacob is not reprimanded and Joseph is not a sinful person and Judah doesn't make terrible mistakes and Moses has faith. Wouldn't that be nice? Moses, the great leader, should have a little bit of faith. God shouldn't tell him you shouldn't have faith. And Moses should be reprimanded by God again and again and again. And the Jewish people shouldn't sin and go, want to go back to Egypt after their slavery. And they should be victorious. And ha- Shouldn't things work out for them? Yeah. Don't you think the motivation of a human author, if he, was, if he was Jewish, would be to make the Jews look good a little bit? You read the book, right? We question God at every possible opportunity. They, we send spies into the land, and then they say, oh, goodness, it's terrible. We don't trust God. Let's go back to Egypt. What's going on? Shouldn't the authors try to paint the Jews in a good light? Every other book of history 
that's written by a certain culture presents that culture in a positive spin. You know, if you read about the Cold War in Russia, you'll get a very different account than you do growing up over here. Not only that, certainly in history, we know historically uh, the, the uh, documentations that we have from ancient civilizations are notorious for amplifying their own success and their own prowess and their own victories and their own everything and making everyone else look terrible. Why would the Jews not do the same? Talk about a glorious nation that does no wrong. And they have prophecy and they never make any sins and it's fantastic and the leaders are tremendously moral and upstanding. Wouldn't that be the way you would do that? Why so much negativity? Why is it possible that Moshe, who's obviously the hero of the story, is also the villain because he is reprimanded and, uh, and castigated by God more than anyone else in the entire book? What is going on? Additionally, I want to just bring a few more points here. This is all assuming we're taking door number B and we're questioning the divine authorship of God. We have, according to history, this is uh, undeniable, the Jews in the 5th century were already scattered throughout the land. The Jews were in Persia, the Jews were in Babylon, the Jews were in Asia Minor, the Jews, some of them were even in North Africa. There was still a contingency of Jews in Israel. Jews were everywhere. If that is the time when the book was finalized, like the Bible declared say it was, who was the one who went on a missionary pilgrimage to deliver the books to every nation, to every group of Jews scattered throughout the globe? Who was the one who says, who had to peddle the story of a divine book? Because the book itself talks about it being divine. Someone has to go and independently convince every group of its falsehood. Of this falsehood. If we are questioning the legitimacy of the book, according to the Bible courts, I agree with you. I say the Torah was given to Moshe, and Moshe gave it to the Jewish people. It's all the word of God, and it's all perfect, and we have the oral Torah, the written Torah. It's all Torah Messinai, Torah Menishamayim. That's what I believe, and I think there's evidence to that. My point is, is that the people that question that, they have to answer all these other questions because they're not addressing that. They have to explain to me how is it possible that a document that's relatively new, 2,500 years old, 5th century of the Common Era, that document gained traction and popularity and observance and tenacious observance by Jews all across the world. And they all were duped into thinking that their parents thought of Mount Sinai. And they were all duped into thinking that Moshe gave them the book. By the way, the book itself says that Moshe gave them the book. So the book is itself falsifiable, right? If this story is true, you have to be banking on a nation that is too stupid to realize that they're being duped. The only way to explain is if you're saying our ancestors were dumb and they believed whatever people were sold. And we know that's not true. And especially, I'm saying the story itself talks about us being stiff-necked and obstinate. So how is it possible that we're being referred to as a stiff-necked and obstinate people, yet we're, we're so gullible, we accept whatever people tell us to believe blatant falsehoods that this, you know, that, that this, this book has been peddled as being real when it, when it wasn't. The, there are a lot of questions that a Bible critic must face if they want to be intellectually honest. Now, I want, I, want, I want to go to the crux of their argument. I want to just puncture some holes. We have a lot of questions that they have to answer. Let's look at their argument itself. 
the fundamental premise, the fulcrum of their argument, is the fact that there's different names for God in the Torah. Right? That's why there's the J document, which refers to, allegedly, right? Of course, this is what they're, that's what they're saying. The J document, which is allegedly the, the, uh, uh, the written document, the written text that had the name of God that we call the Shem HaMaforosh, the ineffable four-letter name of God, the name that we're not allowed to say. That was the deity, so to speak, of that document. And then there's the E document, which refers to Elohim. We don't say it with the He, because we not pronounce God's name in vain. And that was a separate document, and then it was merged together. That is the fundamental premise of Bible criticism. It's very important to remember. That is where it all started. And that's, that's really uh, the root of the argument. Now, I have been called in the past week six different names. I was called Yaakov. I was called Mr. Walby. I was called Rabbi Walby. I was called Jeffrey, that's my legal name. My kids called me Abba. And then in a Facebook post from someone who walked out of my class uh, last Wednesday, he called me the kid, which I love. I kind of go by that. The kid. What does that mean? Am I six different people? Clearly not. What it means is, is that the names are contingent on the relationship that you have with that person. You know, my wife calls me Yaakov, right? My brother calls me Yaakov. My students call me Rabbi or Rabbi Wolby. On the phone, telemarketers call me either Jeffrey or Mr. Wolby. That's what I get in the, in the mail. What do you mean Mr. Wolby? I'm Yaakov, I'm Jeffrey, I'm Abba. No, no, I'm all the same guy. But the, rela- the name that you will call someone connotes the relationship. You can be referring to one God and there's different names of that same God depending on the relationship. And by the way, you know who said this 2,000 years ago? The Talmud. The Talmud asked the question that the brilliant German scholars thought that they came up and they finally got it. They have the, the secret to understanding the Bible. The Talmud asked the same question. Why, why, why have different names of God? And you know what it says? First of all, the word Elohim is very frequently mis, uh, mistranslated. Because the word Elohim does not mean God. And how do you know that? The word Elohim actually means gods. Many. Eloka or El would be one God. And now we obviously believe in Hashem Echad. There's only one God. So what's going on over here? And not only that, if you look, and I have a few places here. So I want to quote you some verses here. This is from Shmos, Exodus chapter 4. Uh, this is God speaking to Moshe and telling Moshe, you are going to be, Aaron is going to be your spokesperson and you're going to be for him an Elohim. Obviously, Moshe is not a deity or a god of any sort. Elohim means master or ruler or power. That's what it means. Thus, if Moshe has the power of the relationship, he's going to be the one who is the guide, who's going to make the decision maker of the two. The Torah calls him Elohim. Not only that. Al kol devar pesha, al shor, 
על חמור, על שה, על סלמו, על כל אבידה, אשר יאמר תהיו זה, עד האלוהים יבוא דבר שניהם. אשר ירשיעו אלוהים, ישם שניים לרעים. What it means like this. This is a, quote, a verse also from Exodus. This is chapter 22. It talks about a, dis- a disagreement, a civil disagreement that two people have in court. They're arguing, does he owe you money? Does he not owe you money? What happens? You go to the court. And ha'elohim yavod varshneim. They go to the Elohim. They go to God. What are you, two people argue, uh, God, is that no? It means referring to the court. The power. They have the powers. Thus, when it says Elohim, Elohim, referring to God, that is referring to God's powers. God has all the powers. Thus, the name of Elohim refers to God's power, God's dominance. Says the Talmud, it refers to God's attribute of judgment. When God is like a judge and treats us with the very strict letter of the law, the Torah calls him Elohim. However, the ineffable four-letter name of God, the one that we're not allowed to pronounce, the reason why we're not allowed to pronounce it is because it refers to God himself. It is a blend of the the word was, is, and will be. Because that's what we're referring to God as. God is beyond time and space. Thus, that name is referring to God himself, and God is benevolent. So thus, when that term is used you know that you're referring to God being benevolent to us. There's mercy. Simply, we, like, the linchpin of the argument of the Bible critics, the fact that there's different names of God, was asked thousands of years ago. And you know what we got when we asked that question? We got an insight that helps us understand every time when a name of God is used, what, how was God treating us? Which one of those various names Thus, various relationships that we have with God, which one of them is, is on display in this current section of the Torah? If it says Elohim, you know that there is an attribute of judgment, of, 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 of strictness, of the letter of the law. If it says the name of Yotke Vavke, as we say, the ineffable name of God, well, then there's mercy. Not only do we see subtleties, right? It's, but we also understand a little bit about how to study Torah. And we see how beneficial it is to ask the questions. The questions are good questions. But the answer of saying, oh, it must be referred to different people, that, that conclusion is, is, is unfounded. Right? Once, especially if you have the understanding that we have had integrated into our perspectives for thousands of years. We already knew this. Any school child in Israel, you ask any kid in Israel, any seventh grader, sixth grader, you say to them, uh, what's the difference between the name of Elohim and the name of Yudhi Bhavki? The, the J and the E. What's the difference? Well, why does he use say this is the attribute of judgment, of justice, this is the attribute of mercy of, of benevolence. Everyone knows that. Comes along the Germans. Huh, different names, huh? Must be referred to different people. That is as silly and as preposterous as saying, oh, this guy was called Jeffrey and Yakov and Mr. Wobby and it must be multiple different people. And it was all later on, they made him into one. This, they created this composite. Really, it's different people. No, it's not different people, different relationships. Uh, thus, when God tells Moses in the beginning of Exodus, he says, I appeared to you with this name, and I appeared to Abraham and Jacob with that name. 
if, if the Bible critics only read that verse, and they see that God is treating people differently, and thus the names are a way to understand what the relationship is. It says it very clearly. I appeared to God, uh, to Abraham with El Shakai, with that name that you mentioned, but this other name, I didn't reveal to him. Different names? It's different people? No. Different entities? Certainly not. It just means different relationships. God appeared to Abraham with a much more limited prophecy. With Moses, it was a much more expansive, exhaustive prophecy. And, you know, I, I, I think about it this way, you know. Let's think about how... You know how preposterous this really is. Imagine like you uh, you come into an, an operating room. There's a surgery going on, and there's the surgeon, and then there's the anesthesiologist, and there's all the nurses. Everyone's there, and everyone's involved, and there's all this jargon, all this you know, all this uh, you know, shorthand talk that's flying back and forth. You know, pass me the this and names and letters and numbers and right and everything's shortened, right? And you're like, hmm, you never went to med school. You have no idea. But you're like, huh, I'm going to assess the situation. I'll explain what's really going on here. And you never even ask the surgeon. You never even ask them. You're like, oh, who needs to talk to the surgeon? You have someone who comes in to the Torah, doesn't obviously analyze it or at least treat it with the same reverence or the same respect that it deserves. Because you know what? If he did, he wouldn't come to those conclusions. Clearly has a very happy trigger finger. Right? Never read the fact that God told Moses, told Moses, I appeared to Abram with that name, I appeared to you with a, with a different name. Thus the names mean different relationships. Never, that, that, that didn't stop him. And doesn't even ask the Jews, who are the experts, who have spent millennia toiling and pouring over these works and understanding what it all means. It's unbelievable, it's unfathomable. And they're the experts. They're the Bible experts. The Bible uh, experts are the ones the question of Jim see the it's just it's just preposterous you know i, I, I mean, like the, the fact that you know we could call into question well or the question i said is not the problem but we could conclude based upon these arguments uh, it's really uh, you know it's really short sighted and it's really weak you know uh, if you have a lawyer and the lawyer is writing a brief to be presented to the judge in the court you know, I'm sure he'll write it with lots of decorum, proper etiquette, and proper punctuation, and really nice words, and right? He'll review everything and, you know, edit it, right? On one hand. On the other hand, if that same guy was outside in his car and he sees the guy behind him, the guy next to him parked right next to him. You know when the guy parks right next to you and he can't get into your door? You gotta open the door and kinda slither in. And he's like, ah, oh, I'm fed up with this. And he starts writing out a note furiously and puts on the guy's windshield. And then you compare these two notes. You're like, this is what the lawyer wrote, this is what the guy next to me wrote. The guy, the angry driver. There's no way it's the same guy. No way. Look, the handwriting's different. This one's so nice and organized. This one's so sloppy. The words that this guy uses, he would never use. The lawyer would never use. But really, it's the same guy because the context matters. Right? This is incredibly soft to say. They're stylistically different, different Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Right? When they're different, you know, there's a different message being conveyed. There's a reason why the Almighty separated different books. 
a different book because there's a different message, a different tone, you know, being portrayed here. To automatically jump to a different author is is it's just it's just it's it's a really it's a leap of faith. It's a leap of faith when it's not substantiated uh, by uh, by uh, by the evidence. Clearly, uh, there are uh, assertions and assumptions and premises and presuppositions uh, in the arguments. They never once considered the existence of prophecy. Uh, that's why, of course, they dated Isaiah as being two separate books, and they dated Deuteronomy as being much later, uh, because Deuteronomy predicts events that happened. You know, and if you have an event that happened in a book that you don't believe has access to prophecy, you would clearly conclude that the book was written afterwards. Clearly, right? That's the only option. But of course, you know, we found copies of Isaiah that are 23 years old, that it's all the same book, it's the same thing like we have today. But it really, I think, it really underscores what I consider to be intellectual dishonesty on one hand, or certainly a very, very low bar uh, of what is admissible to try to disprove the Torah. The Torah. Uh, and the, the question I think we should really ask ourselves is, why is there such a bias against the Torah? Why are they so scared that the Torah might be true? What are the implications of that conclusion that really make them relax their standards in ways unseen in other, in other sciences? Tell what I, I, I had a student of mine this, this morning. Uh, we were studying together, and we were talking about this, and I, I showed him an article that I saw in the New York Times, February 10th, 2014. I saw it on that day. What's the article? Two Bible scholars from Tel Aviv University. Right. Of course, these are the experts. These are the Bible scholars of Tel Aviv University. Fine. They discovered bones of domesticated camels. They dated those bones to the year to the 10th century BCE. So about 3,000 years ago. 10th, 10th century. Right? That's what they dated it. And this is all they found. They found camel bones that they dated to be 3,000 years old. That's it. 10th, 10th century BCE. The article goes on to say they used this, they published this to prove that camels have no business in Genesis. Genesis is the story is Abraham. Abraham is 3,800 years ago, so 18th century BCE. And thus, there's no way that he had domesticated camels. You know why? How do we know that? Because we found camels that are 800 years older. That's what the article says. And you could still go, I googled it this morning. It's still online. And the question we have to ask is, how is such an article with, with, with how is that admissible? How does it get past the editors? Yeah. It's, it's so ridiculous, the argument. It's like, as if I said, I went to the store. I went to the library. And I found an old copy of the New York Times from 1935. And I said, oh, look what, this, look what I found. It must be the Times wasn't published in 1895. Can't be, right? Look what I found. I found an existing... Obviously, that's ludicrous. But my point is, is that we have to really ask ourselves... Are the Bible critics doing a fair job? Are they all oh, they're scientists, they're scholars, they're experts. They're not the ones that are 
like the, the religious people or the people that believe blindly, you know, they have the knowledge. They, they're being reasonable. Really? They're, they're being objective? Really? Okay, answer these questions. And this is just the beginning. I have, uh, we're going to continue hopefully next week. We're going to see themes that the Torah writes, and we really have to ask ourselves the question, is it possible that humans either knew this before, or would humans say that before, or would humans make such an unreasonable claim? And really, we're going to try to spend time to, 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 to you know, uh, deepen our appreciation for the veracity and historicity and legitimacy uh, of the Torah, and indeed, uh, we can have the comfort to knowing that even though these uh, alleged scholars may argue otherwise, uh, they have very, very little to stand on, and they are faced with a lot more questions than we are. Uh, and uh, it's unfortunate that uh, there's a free pass given out to anyone that wants to question the Torah. It's unfortunate. Uh, but as pursuers of truth, we can be very comfortable, and this is just the beginning. We're going to do uh, maybe a bunch of weeks of really going through texts of the Torah, seeing predictions, seeing mitzvahs, and going through some of the content of the Torah. Uh, but uh, to say that the scientists who formulated the documentary hypothesis and, and higher Bible criticism, uh, that they, uh, that door is such an easy door to take is really, really uh, uh, untrue, and, uh, and we are going to uh, work to try to develop and deepen our appreciation uh, for the Torah.